Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, especially uh, if you are new or visiting, we would love to meet you. And so please uh, come and find me after service is over or any one of the other elders as well. Uh, ben was up here reading the scripture. Josh is an elder, and Pastor Dave is somewhere uh, in the back. Uh, but whether you're new or not, uh, Sunday mornings are a good time to connect. It's an opportunity for you to ask any questions you may have, uh, give to us your comments, uh, concerns, feedback, uh, and et cetera. And so we encourage you to do that. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 19 and verse 11 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 878 if you are using a church Bible, page 878. Luke chapter 18 and verse 11, and before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we come before you and we come before your word and, and we ask that you would make this message clear, uh, that it would be accurate, and that it would be powerful in each of our lives by the Holy Spirit, that you would save those who uh, may not know you, and that you would continue to save us who do. Uh, we ask that you would show us the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, that everything else would pale in comparison. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I think that one of the uh, bigger tests of the Christian life is simply time. There is this waiting game between Jesus' first arrival and his upcoming return that, that serves as this great assessment for what it is we believe. Time tests whether our faith is genuine or if it's just a flash in the pan by whether that faith actually lasts. Time tests what we trust in by whether we're still going to trust in it after years and decades have gone by. Time reveals within each of our hearts uh, what's inside of it because who we are and, and where we choose to find our joy and what we decide to believe in, it is all inevitably unveiled over a period of time and through a variety of ups and downs and circumstances here and there because what is inside each of us will be always squeezed out and then come to the forefront. And Jesus, uh, from almost the very beginning of his ministry, he understood this out loud from the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8 where the seed of the word of God is sown and falls upon all different kinds of hearers and all different kinds of hearts. It's time that shows whether each heart actually allows this word to sink in and to develop roots and to grow into something that lasts. When Jesus gives the parable of the servant waiting for their master in Luke chapter 12, a lot of the servants, they simply fall asleep because it's been too much time. Other servants act as if the master is never going to return, and then they start living their lives very selfishly because the wait has been too long to bear. And as of right now, the span from when Jesus had been born into a manger uh, to today has been over 2,000 years. That is a very long time to wait for Jesus' return. And that fact alone can often breed within us uh, spiritual apathy. That as time passes more and more, we can almost forget what it is that we are waiting for. But Jesus is going to come again and inevitably so. And he has already told us that this kind of interval would be the case long before any of us had even begun to wait. 
What we have in our passage this morning is Jesus, uh, with love in his eyes, uh, telling his people to trust in him and to seek ye first the kingdom of God, even when that kingdom seems so far away. And, and he gives to us a very graphic parable to encourage his people to persevere and to continue to be faithful to the task at hand. In verse 11, we see the very occasion for this parable, which is a misunderstanding of his kingdom. Verse 11, we read, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. There are two reasons here why Jesus gives this parable to us, marked by the two becauses. Jesus is close to Jerusalem, which means he's close to death. And his disciples think that the kingdom of God is now, not later. Jesus' followers are not thinking there's going to be that much of a wait. They're thinking it's going to be immediate. They believe that Jesus' kingdom in all of its fullness is right around the corner and that their race is almost done and that from the time they began to follow Jesus to the finish line, it's very short. They're not thinking thousands of years. They're thinking days that this Christian life is more of a sprint than it is a marathon. But the Christian life is not a sprint to the end. And 2,000 plus years later, we can look back and think to ourselves, how could they have ever believed that? But if we put ourselves into their shoes, we might understand their rationale a little bit better. I mean, from the moment three or so years prior that they first encountered Jesus, they know there's something different about him. From the way that he teaches with authority and how he questions uh, hollow religiosity and, and, and quite fearlessly at that. How he comes to the poor and helps the broken. How, how even little children want to run into his arms and, and the worst of sinners feel comfortable doing the same. You know that this person is very different. And he calls you to leave all and to follow him. And, and the last few years for them have been this whirlwind of events. They've seen paralytics walk, lepers made clean, demons cast out. You hungry, 5,000 other people plus in the crowds are also hungry because they've been listening to Jesus preach all day and there's nothing to eat. And then Jesus takes a meal meant for one person, prays, breaks bread, tears fish, and feeds the entire multitude with 12 baskets of food, not plates, 12 baskets of food left over, one for each disciple. And at that point, it's easier to follow him and your eyes are big and your mind is fantasizing about what is to come for what is Jesus's main message but the kingdom of God. And what have they most recently witnessed? A blind beggar in Jericho screaming out loud, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, that's a messianic title, royal, kingly rule, God's eternal ruler. And then this blind man gets his vision back. What happens right after that in the text prior to this one? A tax collector, and, and not just any tax collector, but the chief one, which means this guy's the most wicked of the wicked. He sells people out for money because he loves money at the cost of everything else. Zacchaeus. And what happens with him? He gives it all back and way more than he ever stole. It doesn't mean anything to him anymore. He does what a rich young ruler couldn't do. He sells all, gives it all away. And what does Jesus say to him? Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, salvation. The time is now. And the disciples, they've left everything, job, family, home. They've experienced everything, miracles, preaching. Uh, they've witnessed the heart and character of Jesus. And there are, in this moment, thousands of people 
on this march into Jerusalem because it's Passover season. And so the scene is electric. The hype is at its peak. The buzz is everywhere that the last few years have been crazy, life-changing, and now our race is done. Our job is complete. The kingdom is about to be here. That's what they are feeling in this very moment. And Jesus knows it, and he can feel it without them even saying anything about it. They want the pomp. They want the splendor. They want the glory, even when Jesus is about to hang up upon a cross in Jerusalem. And this is the reason, and this is the context for why Jesus gives to them and to us this parable. We continue in verse 12. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received his kingdom, he ordered those servants to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. The parable that Jesus gives here is not one of instant gratification, nor is it one of an immediate kingdom and quick glory and comfort and ease. No, the picture that Jesus paints for his very eager followers is one of patience and of steady faithfulness in the midst of rejection, but with an astronomical reward. And so we have here this long wait, the charge he gives to them, the opposition they're going to experience, and then the reward. The long wait, the charge, the opposition, and then the reward. First, the long wait. Jesus is the nobleman. And while his identity is that of a king, he is going to a faraway place before he returns to rule and to reign in fullness. He is the king in identity, but he is not yet king in full manifested rule. The end of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 tells us, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We know that. So I have to read the news on any given day. This world's a broken place. We feel it. And we are waiting for all things that, to be made new. And this wait has been, again, over 2,000 years so far. That is the long wait. The charge this nobleman calls his servants and gives to them currency, minas. Each is worth about three months of a laborer's wage. It's a substantial amount, but it's not horribly significant. It's not a horribly significant amount of money. And they are charged to engage in business until I come, verse 13. And so what are they supposed to do? They're to take that mina and that currency and make more with it. It's entrusted to them. It's not theirs. And they are to make it grow. They are not to live for themselves but to live for the king and the coming kingdom and for the king's agenda. And the gospel we have and the resources God gives to us, the privileges we own as his servants, these are the things that are entrusted to us. And we are to take this gospel and make it larger in each of our own lives and in the lives of the people around us. We are to grow the gospel's impact within each of our hearts with the honest application of it, true repentance within it, real life change 
And we are to put the gospel to work by giving it to others, by modeling it and speaking about it. We're supposed to be doers of the gospel and not merely hearers of it. So that the return of Jesus' investment in each of us will grow and grow and grow. That's the charge. But there is opposition. It's not going to be easy for the citizens of the nobleman Adam. I mean, try working for the king when so much of the people are against the king. It's similar today as it was then, that there are not many who joyfully uh, want to recognize Jesus Christ for who he is, nor do they desire his rule and reign over their lives. They, they just don't see beauty in him, nor do they admit the truthfulness of his word, nor do they recognize their own condition, nor will they see God's love in Jesus Christ. What humanity wants since the very fall of humanity is this independence from God. Romans 3.11, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. And for those of you who have been a believer for even just a little bit of time, I mean, you already know that not everyone is as high on Jesus as you are. And that fact alone will change your relationships. It will alter your families. It can change your standing within this world. And we can be shocked by it, and we can be disappointed with it, but Jesus has been clear again and again that this is a very normal Christian experience. There is opposition. And this is visualized here in a king's very own citizens hating him and not wanting him to reign over them. And so the long wait, the charge, the opposition, but after all of this, there is a reward. And, and the reward is not from the citizens. The reward is not even actualized in this interim time. The reward is going to come from the king himself when he returns. And sometimes the question we ask, whether we say it out loud or not, the question we can ask uh, so often when the time is long and, and the spiritual uh, climate is uncomfortable, the, the question we can sometimes ask ourselves is, is this all even really worth it? And here we see the, uh, the king's generosity. One servant with one mina, he takes that one mina, he makes 10 minas. That's three months of wages turned into 30 months of a laborer's wage. That's a fantastic return. But look at the disproportionate reward. He gets 10 cities. Cities. I mean, you're converting three months of a laborer's wage. That's not a high hourly rate. You take that, and it turns into overseeing 10 cities, not even 10 houses, which would be astronomical in and of itself, but 10 cities. And the words out of the king's mouth, when all is said and done, are well done, good servant. The other servant, similar. One mina makes five, 15 months of a laborer's wage, and his disproportionate reward is five entire cities. And then we begin to understand that when we are about the king's business, there are no bad investments in it. There are no losses. There are only coming gains. And can you imagine the look on each of their faces when they hear this reward? Most of the time, financial investors take a small percentage of their portfolio. That's what would normally happen. No, this is ridiculous. You made this into this, and now you get all of this. And their response would be jaw-dropped amazement. This doesn't make any kind of sense. We're talking about laborer pay, and you are making us reign with you. And the parallel is there, isn't it, from what we see in the New Testament. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelations 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I mean, I don't know that we understand what the coming kingdom is going to entail, but our jaws will be dropped. And all the sacrifices we have made and the investments we have put in into making this gospel more real in each of our lives and more real in the lives of the people around us, when all is said and done, our jaws will be hanging open. How is it that we get to sit with you in a place that only you deserve? This coming glory is not instant, but it is inevitable. And we are going to be utterly shocked in that moment at how generous our king will be to each of us. And while rewarded we may be, uh, there is no pride and there is no boasting. You hear it in their voices. They don't even say, king, I made you 10 minas. You gave me one, but I made 10. It's a good thing that you have me on your team. And give me what's coming to me. I'm just that skilled. Now, what do they say? Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. Because it is at the end of the day, they know, like all believers do, that our returns in this life are because of what the king has given to each of us. The mina makes more minas. We don't. The gospel spreads. It's powerful on its own. We just invest it. We just believe it. We apply it. We lift it up for others to see. We use it in each of our lives and in the lives of the people around us. And so we are called to be about our master's business with the gospel, and with the resources he has given to each of us. And our master's business is to be at the very center of our attention until he returns. That's the finish line. Even though the wait is long, the charge is difficult, the opposition is everywhere, it will all be worth it in the end. But even this weighty truth is, is not the, the main, main focus of this parable. For Jesus actually devotes more verses to the servant who does not take these truths to heart. Verse 20, we continue. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We can uh, use the gospel and make use of all the privileges that God has given to each of us or we can lose it all. When we use it, we get even more of it. When we don't, we lose even what we have. The wicked servant here, he doesn't use a mean at all. He wraps it up into a handkerchief and acts like he doesn't even have it. It's kept under wraps, secret from his own heart and secret to the people around him. He is not about his master's business. The gospel, its privileges, God's resources are never made to grow in this man's life nor in the life within the spheres of his influence. This servant, he's not interested in the king's business. 
and how the kingdom progresses means almost nothing at all to him. But look at his rationale. The reason this servant does nothing with Amina is because he views the king as hard and as unfair and as unfeeling. And the reason why those who call themselves Christian will keep that gospel covered and put it away and never have it be used is because they will often have an inaccurate view of God as well, so much so that they might even blame him for their own ineffectiveness. But this parable shows to us that no wrong view of God will ever be a valid excuse for uselessness in the kingdom of God. And every attack on the character of God is not going to fly in the end. This wicked servant is condemned by his own words. Now, it's easy to kind of throw stones at this guy, but this kind of living is not as uncommon as you might think. There is a long period of time before the coming kingdom. There is a great wait before we will see Jesus face to face. And in the interim, life is not always that easy, nor is it that comfortable. And each of us, we have all been in a place where we can be tempted to view the God of all love as if he were instead a hard and a very unfair master. When life doesn't go according to our plan or when situations take a turn for the worse. And I don't think I have to list every variety of circumstances that so many of us have been through. I think you already know. And I'm sure that even this morning, the majority of us here are going through something within this very short life that is difficult for each of us, whether it's relationally, physically, something there is altogether trying. And in those moments, we can look at it all and think to ourselves, because we don't say it explicitly. We come here and sing songs. We don't say it explicitly, but we feel it. We feel that, God, you're unfair. And you've given me a, a harder life than I need in this moment. And the situation that I'm in, it's tough. And you are being, frankly, too severe to me. Again, we might not say it like that out loud, but we feel it. And when we have a view of God like that, we will never serve him. Theology always feels practice. What we believe is what we live always. What comes into our minds when we think of God is literally the most important thing about any of us. Because everything is the subsequent outflow of what comes into our minds when we think of God. That's A.W. Tozer. And if we view God as mean or as hard, we will never want to serve him or further his cause. But God is not hard. We just think so because we so often lose perspective when the suffering is high. I mean, even in this passage, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's about one week away from the very moment where he will suffer and die for the sins of his people upon a cross because he loves them. And it's going to be a very gruesome physical death of long-lasting torture in a variety of ways. It will also be an emotional backstabbing by the very people closest to him that he poured his life into. It will be all-out betrayal. And he will experience this universal rejection, which includes the very nation and people who were given God's word and all the promises and who, who should have had their arms wide open to him. And it is there that the wrath of God will be placed squarely upon his shoulders, a wrath that he himself does not deserve, but a wrath that we do. He will absorb all of that hell. And this is about one week away. And Jesus, while all of this is definitely upon his mind, we see him shift his attention to his followers in love. 
telling them, I'm coming back for you. Be ready for my return. It's going to be a long time from this moment. He's preaching to his followers, I am the king, and I must go to a faraway place. That's death, resurrection, ascension. He's interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, waiting for all his people. Ben read this morning from 2 Peter, he's waiting for people to come to repentance. I'm telling you all of this in advance that I have to go, but I will return with a reward that is far greater than any pain that you will ever have to go through in this short little life. Believe. Yeah, I think his love is highlighted here even more so because he already knows our short-sightedness. He can feel our impatience, which is altogether obvious, just like the disciples were here so much so they didn't even have to say it. Jesus already knew it. And he's still uh, pleading with them really to stay the course and to be faithful because it will all be worth it. Focus on this. Focus on this and, and not on, on that. No matter what it is that you're going through, there's a bigger picture and a wider perspective that we need to see because what is here and what is now is not ultimate at all. Jesus Christ is our king and he is going to return. And a kingdom is coming and he will come and everything will be made new. Listen to R.C. Sproul. When we behold the face of God, all memories of pain and suffering will vanish. Our souls shall be totally healed. That truth is actually a lot bigger and greater than anything that you are currently going through. And I think the challenge for so many of us this morning is to not get hung up on this or that and that or this and thus render ourselves useless to this coming kingdom. For sometimes it is that God does in his mercy and love makes us uncomfortable for a purpose so that he might awaken us to something more spiritual and to redirect our eyes and keep them fixed on a better kingdom than what we have here. That by actually investing our lives into something much bigger than our lives, that that is actually what keeps us faithful and steadfast until he returns. And so we can respond with faithfulness and renewed vigor or we can respond with bad theology and sadly, there will be those servants who will simply not believe it, and they will take what God has entrusted to them, even a clear, cognitive understanding of the gospel, even privileges like growing up in a church and growing up in a believing family and seeing other people's lives get changed. God can give opportunity after opportunity and offer privilege after privilege, and they will wrap it all up and put it away and never use it in their own life are activated in the lives of the people around them. And it is when all is said and all is done that even what they think they have, even that's going to be taken from them. It's going to be sadly those who profess Christianity that will prove ultimately that they are not even Christians at all. For they are not the king's servants at all. And this wicked, king, this wicked servant is given more attention, I think, because we're actually kind of prone to think like him. And Jesus knows this, and therefore in love, he preaches against this. Now, this love is not inconsistent with an accurate view of the judgment ahead, and we see that in verse 27. Jesus says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. 
And there really is no middle ground. You're either for Christ or you're against Christ. There's, nothing, there's no safe middle gray area where I'm just indifferent to him. We either have him rule over us or we don't want him to rule over us. And there's a great reward or there's a great slaughter. You know, while Jesus is a loving savior of grace, mercy, and long-suffering and love, he's still a king. And this in-between period is given to us so that we might believe before he returns. It's actually quite long, like we heard from Second Peter, so that more people have the opportunity to look upon the Son and be saved and would bend their knee to this gracious and good king. But that doesn't mean that everyone is going to want him. And here we have this graphic uh, shift, this horrific language about his enemies. This is a public slaughter. This is the judgment. 1 Peter 4.17 tells us, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We think that being indifferent to Jesus is this passive action. It's not a passive action, nor is it a light one. And this scene is given to us to remind us how terrible the condition of unbelief really is. And to instill in us as believers this weighty view of sin and to make us feel what rebellion is so that we might repent of any trace of it within our hearts all the more acutely as we feel its sharpness. I think it's also meant to give us a, a reason for this time. We need to be leading other people to repentance. And as we come to Lord's table, uh, we understand that, that we have all rebelled. We were each one of these citizens. And we were each deserving of judgment. We have all played the, the role of the wicked servant, which is why Jesus, he's going to Jerusalem. Before he gets here, he says, this is my body, eat. This is my blood, drink. It takes the whole of me to save even one of us. It's only by his blood uh, that our guilt can be washed away. And if you're new here, the message is not, well, if you be good, you get rewards. And if you are bad, you go to hell. It all rests on you. Good luck. No, the message is none of us are good. We cannot earn a thing, but Jesus Christ has given himself to us and for us. It rests entirely on him. And we believe in him. And we believe him. And really, for the believer, this, this table functions as a recalibration about the whole of our lives. It makes us, as we're holding uh, what symbolizes Christ in our hands, it makes us ponder, what is it that I'm living for? What is it that I'm really hoping for? What do I believe? Am I going to live for myself? Or am I going to live for Jesus Christ, my King, and His upcoming inedible kingdom. This table recalibrates us to look forward and to live in light of it. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It makes us look forward. Later on in Luke 22, 18, I tell you, from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In Matthew's account, I'm going to drink it with you. The blood and the body makes us look forward to the kingdom, and it fuels us, brothers and sisters, to be about his business until he returns. We must be about his business. We must be making this mina multiply. We must be about the king's kingdom, even though it may seem so far away. Would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we are often short-sighted. We are very forgetful and we get intoxicated by things that aren't all that important. 
and, and we get dull to things that really are. And Lord, we pray for grace and mercy and that you would continue to love us with the same love that you've loved us from the very beginning. Would you make your church, would you make our church family so powerful and so single-minded and so useful in your hands that the mina you give to us might be five, 10, 50, 100-fold that your gospel would do its work in Hawaii Kai and the rest of the island and the world beyond. Would you give us the grace necessary that we might believe you and take you at your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.